I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm really excited to have a fairly new friend, actually, Adafi Okporo. He's the author of Asylum, a memoir and a manifesto, which is coming out this year. Adafi migrated to the United States in 2016 as an asylum seeker and is now a refugee of the United States. Adafi is a global gay rights activist, the founder of Refuge America, and one of the country's most visible voices on the issue of displacement, leading an organization with a vision to, quote, strengthen as a place of welcome for LGBTQ displaced people, end quote. He's a graduate of Angu State University and the School of Business at NYU here in New York, where he currently lives. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Adafi. Thank you very much, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. (laughs) You know, we met just a few weeks ago, uh, and we're going to talk about this today at Safe to Be Me conference that we were starting to promote for the UK government, and I, I want to come back to that. I was just struck immediately by your charisma and your story, and I wonder if you might just share with our listeners who've never met you, most of them anyway, a little bit about your journey. How did a kid from Nigeria find his way to New York today to become such a global activist? Thank you very much, Toby. Um, It has been a journey. I didn't know I was going to be in the US one day as an activist. When I was very young, I wanted to grow up and become a medical doctor because everybody in my family uh, did not have an opportunity to go to college. So mm-hmm. I was the last out of four siblings. So I was the first person to have admission to college. So I wanted to have a profession that can help my family out of poverty. So while I was in school studying medicine, it was very difficult for me to complete my education in mm-hmm. the medical field. So I switched to food science and technology under civil engineering and biochemistry combination. And when I graduated from school, I quickly got a job in Abuja to work as a nutritionist with people living with HIV and AIDS, especially pregnant women. So I was working on prevention of mother-to-child transmission, PMTCT. Mm-hmm. It was a USAID-funded project. While I was doing that work, I discovered that most people who were dying of HIV were members of the LGBTQ community in Nigeria sex workers and injection drug users. And the reason why they were dying of HIV, it was because of stigma, because they were being stigmatized by the healthcare sector, so they couldn't access the medication they needed. That was what led me to become a voice for that community. While I was doing that work, I won an award by AVAC, and my names and photographs were published as a gay rights activist in Nigeria led to persecution and I had to flee. So I came to the US as an asylum seeker. And when I was granted asylum in the US, I was homeless. I later found a place, found a job, and I created an organization to solve that problem of Mm -hmm. people released from detention centers or immigrants who come to the US and do not have a place to stay, especially LGBTQ immigrants. And you know, when you do something that is remarkable, other people speak about it. 
And that is how I got into doing media, speaking about the plight of LGBTQ displaced people because people are like, you turn your pain into something that's like an umbrella for other people in your community. So I, I would say that it's mostly circumstances, like happenstance, but I also view myself as a business person. If there's a problem, you want to find a solution. And if there's no problem and you are creating a solution, there is no market for it. So there was an opportunity for a black person, a gay person, a refugee, someone that have that intercession to be visible and I just jump on that bad wagon and that was what brought me it's a great story we sometimes say uh making lemonade out of lemons in life you know lemons can be bitter but you can make a sweet drink from it if, if life gives you lemons make lemonade it sounds like you've done that in a serious way i think so um can, and i don't want to if it's uncomfortable we don't have to go there but i'm kind of curious when you talk about persecution a lot of our listeners don't understand what it would be like to walk in Adate's shoes back then in Nigeria, but can you give us a little bit of sense of what, what that meant or how it was? Yeah. I don't even like to talk about it anymore, but you know, I think that um, is my story. I have lived in it, but many people are unaware of it. And the more I speak about it, I think the greater awareness people can have about it. So in 2013, the government of Nigeria passed the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act, which criminalizes gay marriage by 14 years imprisonment, activists by 10 years imprisonment, public show of affection by two gay persons, 10 years imprisonment, cohabitation by two gay people, 10 years imprisonment. If your family are aware that you are gay and they don't report to you, your family can face 10 years imprisonment. Wow. If an institution provides a gathering for gay identified group, they can be in prison for 10 years imprisonment. So that law led to a persecution by non-state actors. That is not the police, not uh, legal professionals, but other people who are not authorized to do so. So I was a victim of mob violence. I tried to meet somebody on a gay dating app, but I didn't know that pretending to be gay. But when I got there, I discovered that it was a mob. They stripped me naked. They took my ATM, went to the bank and took all the money I have in the bank. And they told me that I can't report because if I go to the police as a gay person, I can face 14 years imprisonment. You know, I couldn't even tell my family because my mom just came to terms with accepting who I am. So now it would be like, that thing that you are fighting to be is what is causing you all this pain. So mm. there was a lot of like isolation. There's three responses people usually have to persecution. One is that they, they go back into the closet, like I'm not going to let anybody know, I'm going to be shy. And those people end up, if they are infected with like HIV or stuff like that, they are afraid to go to the clinic because of that persecution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there are other group of people like me who band together and say that we're going to fight back because we cannot keep on being quiet about the situation that is happening. Then there's a third group of people who turn to religion because they feel like they, maybe they are possessed or stuff like that. And I have found myself in those three situations at different points of my life. 
there was a time I was a pastor of a Pentecostal church in Nigeria because mm-hmm. I thought that if I if I do this, it will like take away this demonic thing that right. is inside of me. So there is persecution from your community, from your church, from your family. There is uh, persecution yeah. from the federal yeah. government, from the police. Every facet of your life is being persecuted. There is no way you can be a gay person in Nigeria, be open and kind of have a life. You have to live. And I suspect there are universal truths to your experience when you think about refugees and asylum seekers from other parts of the world, more recently, Ukraine or Syria. In your work, in your advocacy, what are some of those common themes? And then are there things that are usually quite distinct to each group, whether it's Syrians or Ukrainians seeking refuge? I think that all refugees have one underlining cause. It's not a monolith, but this particular cause is monolithic, is that what would cause someone to flee their home if Mm -hmm. home was safe? And, you know, I think that we all want the same thing, to be able to participate in sports and don't get killed for doing so, to be able to have a safe place to sleep in the night and don't get woken up in the middle of the night by an alarm. I think we are all looking for that safety of Mm -hmm. a home. I think the idea of being a displaced person is that you want home, Um, you want warmth, you want the connection with family and friends. I, as as a displaced person, I have met a lot of other displaced people. And when we are together, we don't look at what made you flee your home. We think about how is life for you now in this place? Have you been able to find that feeling of home? The word nostalgia came from a German psychiatrist who was looking at why do these soldiers feel so strong emotion about home that they even die from the pain of thinking about their home. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a true line for most displaced people. When we find ourselves in a new country, there is still this nostalgic feeling of like, ah, my mother's food, ah, this dress I'm wearing is not what I am used to. The weather is cold sometimes here. Yeah. It's always sunny in Nigeria. And, you know, I deleted my Facebook because the nostalgia was too strong. Sometimes I see my nephew and nieces celebrating their birthday. I can't be there. If I'm going to get married, my family cannot attend my marriage. And, you know, you start feeling like you're missing home. And I think that that is the quest we're trying to, to, to find that feeling of home wherever we find ourselves in. That concept of nostalgia, do you have any sense, not necessarily statistically, but just sort of impressionistically, how likely it is that a refugee, an asylum seeker ever does really get to go, quote unquote, home? I would think it's very limited that most people, once they're gone, they're gone because the way things happen. You know, being a refugee is not just what happens to you. It's also what you become as a result of what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Take Ukraine, for example. If you fled thinking that you will come back to Ukraine and you travel to Germany and you start learning German or Polish language, you start going to school there, gradually your orientation and your identity of home changes. When you go back to your your quote-unquote home, 
you look different. You're a foreigner. Like, it, it takes averagely 17 years by UNHCR for a refugee to resettle. So after you have resettled in that new country, when you return back to your own country with a new language, a new education, your skin is different. It's like fresher than what it used to be. People will look at you, even though you are part of them, they'll be like, you are now a foreigner because your orientation has changed. So I think that when you go back home, you become a foreigner again. So that refugee experience is trying to to let go of that identity you you had before, keeping the things that makes you sane and adding new set of identity to yourself to be mm. able to integrate into that new society. That's why it surprises me and it pains me in organizations like corporations and workplaces that people tend to want other people to behave like them and not thinking about the amount of effort it took that person that came to this new country to learn mm. the language, to learn the culture. And when someone is not understanding nonverbal cues that they are used to, instead of them to have empathy for the fact that the person has had to leave everything they know and learn a lot to be able to integrate, expecting them to, to go the extra mile to learn your cues rather than you thinking, how can I learn to to make this place more comfortable for this person that have done all this work to be able yes. to be a part of this place. Yes, we talk about inclusion now more regularly in the business world and, uh, and giving employees a sense of truly belonging. I wonder, uh, Adafi, are you doing any consulting to private sector businesses about this concern? Yeah, it's, a big, it's the biggest part of my um, work. So I, I've worked with Facebook, Indeed, Grindr, on their corporate social responsibility strategy as it relates to integration of immigrants in their workforce. Because I believe that, you know, when we think about inclusion and belonging and diversity, if I'm in a workplace, I'm a diverse figure because I'm a black male, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But if I don't feel like I belong, it can't come from the organization. It has to come from the individual that you're creating a sense of belonging for. And this work is not just one and done. It's not like bringing a speaker like me to speak about my experience. It's about how does the leadership think about their interview process? Because the person you are trying to interview, quote unquote, their resume might be from a different country. So they have to update their resume to this country. So the pipeline you are using to recruit people has to change. And when you're onboarding a, a person that comes from a different culture, that doesn't, especially a Muslim person that doesn't understand interest in borrowing and your business model is like interest in borrowing, <laughs> you, you, you have to be like, you, you don't have to change the person, but you have to make them understand for you to work in this place. These are sure. some of our philosophy and how do we get you on board? So it's a very serious work to create an inclusive and belonging workplace. And I try to engage organizations in some of both my experiences and data I have seen from doing this work. Yeah, and doing that sort of systemic long-term integration. And then as you've alluded to, just staying vigilant because it's a constant um, 
one step forward, two steps back, actually. I mean, that leads to the Safe to Be Me conference, which I want to ask you about. So you and I met a few weeks ago when Lord Herbert was in town uh, to introduce this conference the UK government was doing in June to actually advocate for LGBT safety and inclusion globally, knowing fully that we don't have all the solutions, but we want to try and use our platform to, to help ensure that the LGBT community can prosper in life and be safe. And then this past week, there was some flip-flopping, it seemed, and stories leaked. And long story short, the prime minister committed yet again to trying to legislate against conversion therapy, which is truly odious, but he did not include trans citizens. Unfortunately, it was also on Trans Visibility Day. So, <laughs> so that's not ironic. I don't know what is. But uh, long story short, over the weekend, then dozens and dozens of NGOs pulled out. And yesterday we announced that we would be not doing the conference because we didn't have the support of the people we needed. I wonder what your take is on that. I think it's unfortunate, very unfortunate that it was canceled. But I'd like to believe that we're still trying to do the right kind of work in the government. While this is a setback, we're still moving forward. I'm an activist. I don't like governments in terms of the bureaucracy. The UN has a role to play to keep world peace. But right now they are fighting in Ukraine. So what role are they really playing? It's not visible, but the fact that the world is not burning right to the ground, it means that the UN is still doing something. Like mm -hmm. sometimes something is better than nothing. But when I came to the event, I told you that, is this not like whitewashing and signaling that the mm -hmm. UK is doing because majority of the countries whereby it's illegal to be gay, the laws mm -hmm. are passed as like colonial laws that stem from the United Kingdom. I think from the onset, the safe to be me has been seen and viewed by community and grassroots organization to be a very elitist and classist event. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to bring people to this conference, you should have started making announcement of when the conference is taking place, the location of the conference, who are speaking, and give scholarship to people living in developing countries to be able to attend such kind of conference. Last year, I wrote an open letter to the World Pride organizers. I was supposed to be a keynote speaker for the LGBTQ displaced people session, and I didn't attend. And I wrote an open letter saying that my reason for not attending is that a lot of LGBTQ people in the continent of Africa applied to attend, but they couldn't attend because of funding. And World Pride organizers have a lot of funding. Why can't they bring some people to Mamo, Sweden? So I think that if the UK is serious about doing this next time, they should think about like, partnering with trans grassroots organizations from the beginning, bringing in LGBTQI people from different parts of the world to be inclusive. The touring pre-conference has been like people in the United Nations trying to bring people in government and businesses. Having round table with business leaders doesn't seem pragmatic. It seems like this is just a funding opportunity to raise awareness. So I mm -hmm. support the organizations that decided to back down at this stage because their work are really underfunded. Calidiscope, UK, Black Pride, all these organizations, they are really underfunded. And if we're going to spend that amount of money to organize a conference, 
coming back from the pandemic, it should have been a good celebration for people to come together and be like, Ray, we survived this pandemic. So what is next for LGBTQ rights? There is still an opportunity to do the conference another year, not this year. So mm -hmm. instead of us looking at it that this is just a and rainfall, we should also look at the sunshine that came from it. There is an opportunity for dialogue with the community. It's still possible. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm, I am optimistic that, well, it's very unfortunate that it's canceled this year. I am optimistic that it is waking some people up that need to be wakened and it will be a lesson learned that can help make an eventual conference successful. Imagine, imagine the conference was the dates and the locations were announced in May and it's happening in June. How can people buy flight tickets? How can people take off from work? So the people you want to attend, you are not being inclusive to think about the, the challenges they might have to be able to attend the conference. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that is really just more than anything, a function of planning and it, it, you say bureaucracy, it's just any big organization trying to get something like this off the ground. It's, it takes time and it was later than any of us would have wished, but I like you believe that the good will come from this. So we'll, we'll learn. And I, I like your suggestion also about trying to communicate earlier about either travel arrangements that can be provided or ways to help those who are less able financially or physically to make it to actually come. That's partly why it was hybrid. COVID's also partly why it was hybrid, but fingers are crossed that we're going to get good out of this. I also want to give a quick shout out to our friend, Evan Wolfson, who basically that's how we met that night. The architect of marriage, someone I worked with for years uh, when I was at Empire State Pride Agent on the board to lobby successfully for marriage equality here in New York. And, and I guess you've also worked with him then through the years, right? Yeah, Evan Wolfson is a mentor to me. When I was running the shelter, Evan came to visit the shelter. You don't speak some Russian, communicate with like, we have Russian asylum seekers that came here after the Sheshnam purge, and he was conversing with them in Russia. And he helped with like developing our advocacy strategy because at that time we were advocating for LGBTQ immigrants and immigrants in New York City to have access to city shelter system. So. It was like architect in drawing a campaign plan because you know Evan is like here is the vision where are you taking people to let's develop a plan so yeah. i still have him as a mentor up to today sometimes i organize a zoom session with him just to check in and tell him about what i'm doing and and um you shared with us that night that you're actually engaged you're going to get married now right yeah in july <laughs> That must be so joyful after all this work for Evan, for for your journey, and even mine working on marriage equality in in New York. So congratulations! I found that the biggest challenge when I got married was planning a wedding or reception. Because you know, the joy of finding a home is knowing that you can be able to this sustainability. Because I think that back home in Nigeria, people do not really have like quote-unquote relationships because there was no possibility of something lasting there was no no gay marriage no ability to cohabitate public show of affection and i think that when we think about equality in 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 the us uk and other western countries we should think about how does this love is love become a mantra for people 
who are not in the places. If the UK organize Safe to Be Me in the UK, a gay person watching on TV or Facebook or Twitter, seeing other gay people celebrating, they are like, why not us? And when would it be our turn? And that is one thing Eva Watson is doing that I greatly appreciate is that after we won gay marriage in America, Eastern is focused to funding and strategizing and supporting activists mm-hmm. in other countries. It was very instrumental for Taiwan, India, and it's also instrumental in other countries that are having uprising to win gay marriage across the world. And you know, when people call me a global gay rights activist, is because my focus has not just been helping gay people in the US, mm. which is a place I am based in. It has been my ability to look into what equality would look like if a gay person is able to travel freely. Like if you are married, you are living in the UK or the US, you and your partner cannot go to Iran for vacation. Or if you are transferred to Nigeria, maybe you might not be able to go because your marriage would not be recognized in that country. Mm -hmm. And that is the focus of my work is like, how do we achieve quote unquote equality in the books across the world? Well, I I think one of your great contributions, which I'd like to ask you about is your book, your memoirs coming out, Asylum, a memoir and a manifesto. Tell us a little bit about it. What do we have to look forward to? (laughs) You know, It's always tricky to talk about a memoir because it's my life. And I might say things that I think I want a reader to get out of it, but it might not be what the reader really get out of it. Mm -hmm. But I think on my end, when I was writing at the beginning, I was writing to my younger self because when I was 17 and 18, I didn't see a gay person that looks like me. And I was asking if it's really true that I can be gay. And I I, I wanted that person to see themselves in a book and say that it's not just only a white person that can be gay. Um, A gay black person exists, an African exists, a Nigerian exists, a Christian exists, all those identities could exist. And I think books influence our culture also. Mm -hmm. And they influence our culture in a positive way. You know, I struggled a lot growing up financially, economically, and being able to be somewhat economically sustainable, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world, Mm -hmm. and being able to afford an education is a testament of their ability to turn obstacle into success. And Mm -hmm. I wanted people who are struggling, who are working two jobs like I was at the beginning or who are homeless that pick my book and read and they will be like, I am hopeful that if a Daffy can do it, maybe one day I too would be able to achieve this because I was very greatly influenced by James Baldwin when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of his book and and it was in Paris, but it was influencing gay culture and black culture in America. Although I mean, the U.S., my literature can be published without being banished. Mm-hmm. Most Nigerians who are living in a digital age can be able to assess this book and they'll read it and they'll be like, see themselves in it and maybe one day influence mm-hmm. the culture to say that 
oh, the first time I saw a gay person in a book as a Nigerian was a Daffy. Because I'm the first openly gay man from Nigeria that is being published by a traditional publisher using my story in the first person, I am me. So I hope that that impacted culture in a way. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have as our guest, Daffy Okporo. He is both a, a, a refugee who did successfully seek asylum here in the United States, and he is a global advocate and activist for gay rights. Adafi, I wonder if you might say a little bit about where you think the social justice movement is globally right now. Are you more optimistic than ever? Are you more pessimistic? Are young people stepping up? Are they not so interested? Is it even safe to make such generalizations? I'm an optimist. <laughs> I believe that there's a lot of change happening in the world. When my father was younger, my father lost eight of his siblings to famine. I don't think any of my siblings died due to famine. When I was younger, a lot of my friends and community members died of malaria and typhoid. Although people are still dying of malaria and typhoid, but it's not as bad as it used to be before. Mm -hmm. 54 years ago, there was no possibility of like holding hands as a gay person in America. And now people cannot be fired from their job for being gay. I think that before we talk about young people, we have to talk about the people that fought for us to be able to enjoy what we have today. A lot of people have fought for us to have the privileges we have today. They are both women and men that give their life, lose their source of living for us to enjoy what we have today. I am participating in social justice movements. I am channeling all the effort it has taken for me to be able to express myself as a person today. It's way easier to be an activist today than Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. or James Baldwin as a gay person. So difficult for them to be an activist. Today, my rights are protected as a Black gay activist in America. I think that there's promise. Secondly, one other thing that is very promising is that businesses have seen the impact of social movement. Businesses are economies on their own. When businesses start making impact in the social space, it affects the well-being of everybody. One company that I have seen recently that have done an incredible job that I always admire every time I see it. I even posted it on LinkedIn today, Starbucks. So mm. I was in DC two years ago. I went to a Starbucks. While I was standing in the line, they gave me a chalkboard to write my order on it. I was like, who writes in a chalkboard? But I did it anyway. When I got to the barista, he just gave me a coffee. So. The guy that was in the decks, the barrister that was doing the register, is deaf. Oh. Everybody in the Starbucks was supporting him for him to keep the job as the front desk cashier, despite his difficulty in hearing. Two days ago, I saw the post on LinkedIn. A Starbucks barrister had been serving a boy for about four years. The boy is deaf. So the Starbucks barrister went on YouTube to learn ASL so that he can do the order for the boy. So the boy came to the cafe to get his cup of coffee regularly in the morning, usually type on his phone and give it mm -hmm. to the barrister. But yeah. when he got there that day, the barrister greeted, greeted him in ASL and took his order in ASL. How incredible and inclusive is that? Is that the barrister went to learn ASL on YouTube so you can help this boy yeah. feel the experience other people feel when they yeah. walk into the Starbucks. For me, that is social justice. 
making the quality of people's life better, ensuring that they are inclusive. You know, if someone is excluded from something, they feel the same pain you feel when something happens in your body, like if you break your leg or you break your arm. I think that we are moving into a high-tech economy whereby a lot of things are faster and more efficient. So social justice now is moving into more belonging rather than exclusion. The only thing I'm not hopeful about, sincere, is that as there are growing inclusivity and belonging in some communities, other communities that are increasingly tightening their bubbles, there are communities that don't want people of color to be in their community, gay people to be in their community, people that don't practice the same religion to be in their community. Mm -hmm. And it's threatening that those communities in a country like America, whereby city, states, counties can pass their own laws, start passing laws that exclude other people from being able to partake in their community. That is the only downside I, I see right now. It's like, how do we extend our messaging, not only to the converted, but those that are adamant to the messaging? And the only way we can do that is just a four-letter word, love. Mm-hmm. It's the easiest thing to do, but it's the hardest to manifest. Yep. A lot of social justice activists are repelling other people from the movement instead of bringing them into the movement. Yeah. If you take a closer look at what we are fighting for, it's the same things. People want their rights to be protected on the right. People want their rights to be protected on the left. So let's come together and figure out how do we protect our rights together. Adafi, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, It's funny when you talked about the barista. I have a friend I was with yesterday, and he had a similar experience at Whole Foods yesterday, where the person who was checking him out was actually deaf. And they were able to have a fun exchange while checking him out. And all that just makes me so excited because you can see how the change is happening. And when you can see it, then you can be supportive of it. You can be part of that change. My, my last question for you is any words of advice or wisdom for the individual who wants to catalyze that positive change? Love is the, the big theme, but how does one go about that in a most basic daily routine? I will use refugees as an example. <laughs> you know, when I came to the U.S., it was the compassionate an empathetic group of people that enabled me to be who I am today. When I came here, I was released from the detention center after five months and 14 days. I was homeless. It was a group of volunteers from a group called First Friends of New Jersey and New York that took me to the YMCA shelter in Newark. They contributed $240, five individuals, and paid for me to have that shelter. And it was someone that helped me with my resume. That was how I was able to get my first job in the U.S. Because we are in a capitalist society, people pursue money rather than social connection. The pandemic has made it so difficult for us to pursue that kind of social connection of like, how can we be helpful to people, not just donate money to a cause. There's an organization called Dress for Success. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have suits they are no longer wearing. They trade away. And you can give it to, to a displaced person who just came to a new country that cannot afford a nice suit to use that suit for an interview. We should think about what is the smallest act of kindness 
we can do. And that is how we impact and change the world. Volunteer hours that are spent in the American economy is billions of dollars. Those volunteer hours save a, a non-profit from getting their 5163 status revoked. Because if you are a certified accountant, you can help a community or a grassroots organization do their 990 filing. It's very easy for you, but it's mm. difficult for them. You can help them build their capacity. And if you have money to give, give. Mm. But you can also give your time because the most precious gift we all have is time. And if you can trade your time to help somebody else be more efficient with their time, I think that you have shown the grandest form of love. When things are happening around the world, we try to throw money on the wall and expect money to solve the issue. I run an organization called Refuge America. Although we need funding to do our work, the greatest impact in our work is when an LGBTQ person in Denver say that, I and my husband, we have a big house. If you have a new refugee in Denver that doesn't have a place to stay, we'll give them a place to stay for two months. I think that generosity is like people are becoming more reclusive because when you watch the news, bad things are happening and people are afraid to show kindness. We just have to go back to basis that human beings are caring and loving at a basic level. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, today we've had the delightful privilege of having Adafi Okpora with us, a former refugee, now proud American contributor and author of the newly released or soon to be released Asylum, a memoir and manifesto. Adafi, thank you so much and please come back. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.